Amen. You can have a seat. It's good to see you, Mars Hill. It's been a busy weekend around here. We had a fourth through sixth grade retreat on Friday night, uh, also known as a lock-in, and there's still some bleary-eyed volunteers around here. Uh, from that, it was great. We had 26 fourth through sixth graders here running around. It was awesome. And then we had uh, last night our women's retreat or women's event, Abide. Uh, had a bunch of ladies here for that, and that was really, really great as well. And then this morning, we're celebrating eight baptisms this morning, one in this service and seven in the next service. Uh, so there's a lot going on in the life of Mars Hill and the life of our church family, and a lot to be thankful for and to celebrate. We're continuing in our study of Acts in Acts chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1, really down to verse 10. We're going we're to bleed in a little bit down to verse 16. Chapter 3 is... Uh, a prime example of a pattern that begins to establish itself in the book of Acts. There's a supernatural activity of God. There's a crowd that's drawn. And then after that, there's a witness that stands up that says, this is what's going on. This is the gospel that presents the gospel. It's a pattern that will emerge and we'll begin to see as we study through uh, the rest of this, this study. We also noticed this morning that this is the fulfillment of what Luke has said. Luke said that the beginning when he wrote his gospel was all about what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And then we started Acts and we said this is all about what Jesus continues to do, but he continues to do it through gospel-transformed believers. And this is the first real prime example of that. There's a, a, an indication of that when the Spirit comes in chapter 2 and now the disciples and the apostles speak that's, that's the same pattern, but, but here we see it clearly. Peter and John are about to engage in a miraculous activity. They're about to heal a man lame from birth. For 40 years, he could not walk. And now these disciples are going to be participants in seeing this man healed. Jesus does continue to work, and he works through gospel-transformed believers. And that's what we're going to see. This is the first real uh, miracle here in the text that happens with the, the disciples. So as we begin to study this text, we're going to see this pattern emerge of the, of the supernatural act and, and crowds drawn and then a witness proclaiming. And we'll see that in our text this morning. As we look at the setting of this text, which is telling for us that there's a lot to learn just from the setting, and then the miracle itself, what Peter says and what happens to this, this man that was born lame from birth, and then what we need to see is the response, both his response and the crowd's response, and then we'll see the witness, what Peter says in response. We'll get a little, little bit into that this morning. We'll cover the rest of it next week. The, the bulk of really verse 11 down to 26 is Peter's second sermon uh, that we'll study in more detail next week. So let's first look at the, the setting. In verse 1 it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So temple is mentioned, if you look at verse 2, it's mentioned four times here. This is significant. It's, it's, we're meant to see the, the setting, the context. They're going up to the temple. The temple. Why are they at the temple? Well, clearly the text says, first, they're there to worship. It says because of prayer. They're there at the ninth hour, which is the, the last hour of prayer. There were multiple hours of prayer during the day. The last hour of, of prayer is about 3 p.m. It's also the second and last significant sacrifice that happened at the temple each and every day. 
And everyone's drawing together and they're all pursuing the presence of God and they're all pursuing in this, this environment the, the temple, the presence of God. And that's what's happening here in this text. And that's clearly what they're also doing. And I think that's also telling for us because these believers, they're transformed by the gospel, but they don't retreat from their community. They're still in the community. They're still practicing some of the practices of their people. They're still going to the temple. They're still going for prayer. They're still going for worship. They don't retreat. They don't escape. They're not trying to avoid. Instead, they go right where their friends and their family and the people that are in the immediate vicinity of who they are, where they've been transformed, they go right into the midst of it, which is telling for you and I when we're redeemed, when we're rescued, when we come to Christ. We're not immediately taken out of. We stay right here. And we're in to engage our friends and family right where they're at with the good news of what we have experienced in the gospel. I think there's another thing that they're doing here, and they're not just going up for worship. They're going up for witness. They're going up for witness. They're fulfilling the promise and the, the, the tell that, that Jesus gives them what he commands them to do, which is in Acts 1.8. You will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and where will they be witnesses? They, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other part, uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem, first Jerusalem. What are they doing? They're going where the crowds are. They're going where all the people are gathered. And remember what the people are doing. They're all gathered at the temple seeking the presence of God. They're all going there trying to find God. And these disciples go where the people are seeking God. God. They go where their people are. They go where the crowds are. They go into the crowds. They bring the gospel them, to them. Now, if listen, we cannot forget context. When you study the Bible, you have to remember context. Remember, this is just seven weeks removed from when Jesus was crucified. And if you remember in John chapter 20, after Jesus is crucified, John chapter 20, verse 19 says that the disciples were huddled together in the upper room behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. But here in this context, Peter and John are walking right into the center, into the heart of the Jews. They're not afraid. They're not scared. They're not worried. And what do they do every time they walk into the midst of this, this, the context of the people they used to be afraid of? They proclaim the good news of the gospel. What has happened? The super trans, supernatural transformation of the gospel has occurred. The filling of the Holy Spirit has occurred. The power that Jesus promised has filled them, and now their identity has changed, their confidence has changed, their words have changed, their location has changed. They're not not, they're not fleeing and hiding and fearful in a locked upper room. They're out in the midst of the very people that you were afraid of, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ. This is the, the setting here that we find ourselves. So again, it's fulfilling the promise and the command of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. And that's exactly what they're doing. This is telling us, again, that Jesus' word is being fulfilled. What Jesus promised is occurring. 
This is happening. His word is powerful and it is transforming lives. The setting also includes, though, a lame man from birth. Verse 2, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms and for those of those entering the temple. This is also the setting, and we need to understand this as well. We learn later in chapter 4, verse 22, that he was 40 years old. This man was lame from birth. To say lame, when we see that in the scriptures, what it means is it's referring to his legs, his ankles, his, his feet. It means that he could not walk from birth. That, that for 40 years, this man was dependent on other people to carry him everywhere he went. For 40 years, this man was helpless. For 40 years, this man was hopeless. For 40 years, this man was defenseless, sat in front of the temple, and if anything happened, a riot or crowds just ran, a mob, he's just, he can't move. He is defenseless. He is hopeless. He is helpless. From the perspective of the people that are going into the temple, he's also far from God. He's outside the temple, he's not in the temple. He's at the gate of the temple. He's far. He's distant. He's outside. This crippled man who is powerless and hopeless and helpless and defenseless is also far from God. And every day he's dependent on complete strangers to care for him. Every day he's dependent on complete strangers to throw him coins. Every day this man is longing and, and hoping and waiting for the clanging sound of silver and gold to hit his cup. This is the condition of this man. This man's condition could not be more desperate. And what we need to understand is that this man's physical condition is painting for us a picture of the spiritual condition of every man, woman, and child. This is the spiritual condition of all of our hearts from birth. We are all crippled by sin from birth. We are all hopeless and helpless and defenseless and powerless to do anything about it. We are all hopeless and helpless and defenseless and powerless and desperate for real rescue and real meaning. This man is longing for the clanging coins of silver and gold to satisfy the deepest longings of his heart, and they never do. This is the same condition for you and I. We're all born seeking the clanging coins of earthly idols to fill us up, to give us meaning, to, to satisfy our souls. We're all hunting for something to give us meaning, purpose, and identity. We all, though we might not verbalize it, think and feel and even might say, if I could just have, insert blank, then my life would be whole, then my life would be had meaning and purpose. That blank that might be the silver and gold of possessions. It might be the silver and gold of for singles. If I could just get married. It, it might be the, 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 the silver and gold of for, for married. If I could just have children. Then my life would have meaning and purpose and hope. It, it might be the silver and gold of achievement. It might be the silver and gold of approval. It might be the silver and gold of power. We are all hunting for something just like this man and hoping that whatever that earthly treasure is that we're longing for, whether it be a physical thing or an emotion 
or a feeling or a status or control or power or approval, whatever that thing is, we think that that thing will meet our needs. Here's what's interesting. Silver and gold throughout the Old Testament is usually almost always used to refer to idols. This man is hunting for something he thinks will satisfy his soul and he represents you and I. This is his physical condition points to our spiritual condition. Some of us think, even think, that we can be fulfilled by religious performance. We think that the silver and gold of religious performance, of a good moral life, will satisfy us, will give us meaning, purpose, and identity, will make us right and acceptable before God. Don't forget that this man is a parable for us, but he's also a parable for the people walking right past him, throwing the coins in. Because almsgiving at this time was believed to satisfy God, to please God, to help us avoid death. One extra biblical author says this, For almsgiving delivers from death and keeps you from going into darkness. Indeed, almsgiving for all who practice it is an excellent offering in the presence of the Most High God. We are all in desperate need of the true and better treasure, Jesus. And we're all hunting for earthly treasures to satisfy. We're all in desperate need of the true and better approval of Jesus. We're all in desperate need of the true and better hope, the true and better pleasure, the true and better joy, the true and better anything in Jesus. We're all hunting for that. In Jesus, we're offered the approval that's greater than any earthly approval. In Jesus, we're offered the acceptance that's greater than any earthly acceptance. In Jesus, we're offered the achievement, His achievement, the work, His work, that's greater than any achievement I might ever accomplish in this life. This is what we're offered in Christ. And the question for us is, where will you place your hope and where will you find your identity? What clanging silver or gold are you hunting for? Am I hunting for? That will never, never measure up to the infinite, surpassing, endless treasure of Jesus. The endless, infinite, surpassing treasure of His love, His grace, His approval, His acceptance, His work. This man's physical condition, we cannot miss. It paints a picture for us of our spiritual condition. Of our longing. Every day this man heard the clanging sound of silver and gold promising to satisfy his soul. And every day it did not. Until one day two disciples supernaturally transformed by Jesus. Filled with the Spirit. Convey to this man a treasure that infinitely surpasses silver and gold. And that leads us to the rescue, and to the miracle. The miracle, we need to understand, if we back up from the text for just a second, we back up from the text, we see that this miracle is remarkable because it sits in a pattern. There is a miracle that Jesus performed that many of us are familiar with. In, in Luke chapter 7, it's recorded in, in two, three of the Gospels. In Luke chapter 7, and, and then it's the miracle that Peter performs, and then there's a miracle later in, in Acts that that Paul performs when he's in Lystra. It's in Acts chapter 16. And all three of these miracles involve a lame man from birth. All three of these miracles 
are very similar. In Jesus, when the miracle that we're maybe familiar with is the man that was paralyzed from birth, and his friends carried him on a mat and lowered him down. They couldn't get into the house where Jesus was teaching, and they, they cut a hole in the roof, and they lowered him down before Jesus. And here what we see is another man, lame from birth, could not walk, and he's healed. And then what we see in, in Acts chapter 16 with Paul at Lystra is another man that is lame from birth, could not walk, and he's healed. And so what we have to ask is what's different about these three? What's unique about these three or different and distinct about these three? And what we see immediately, first and foremost, is that Jesus heals by his own power, by his own word, by his own name, by his own power. He heals the man physically and spiritually. And then what we see in these other two, both Peter and Paul are immediate and quick to announce, to say, not me, I didn't do this, not my power, not my name, Jesus did this. So they heal in the power of Jesus' name, Jesus' character, Jesus' presence and person, His nature of who He is. They they point back to Jesus. They divert eyes to Jesus. Both Both Paul and Peter do the same thing. They say nearly the same things. We didn't do this. And in Acts chapter 16, they bow down and try to worship Paul. And he's like, what are you talking about? And we'll see in this text, when Peter says this, when he responds, he says, what are, why are you so astonished by this? It's not by my power or my piety. I didn't do this. It's Jesus who did this. So that one distinction is the power by which they healed. It's not their power. It's Jesus' power. But there's another distinction that's different in what Jesus does. That's, it's explicit in what Jesus says. It's implicit in what Paul and Peter do and all of the miracles throughout Acts. See, when Jesus, when they lower the man down, he first forgives the man of his sins. And everybody's in uproar, and they call him a blasphemer. How can, how can anyone do that? No one can forgive sins except for God. And Jesus is right. And how do we know that he actually can forgive sins? How does anybody know that he can forgive sins? It's easy to say, I forgive you of your sins. You can't see it. How do you know if that's happened? No one can see it. And Jesus knows that and he knows their hearts. And he says, so that you may know that I have the power to forgive sins, to do something spiritually, to do something supernaturally that you cannot see, I'm going to heal this man physically so you can see it and so you can know it. And he says, rise and walk. The the very same words that Peter says in this text. Rise and walk. And the man gets up, takes his mat, and goes home. It's remarkable. And what's the point? Jesus makes it clear. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. The lesser, which is healing a man paralyzed from birth. The small thing. That's the lesser argument. I can do this. If I can do this, then I can do that. If I can heal him paralyzed from birth, then I can heal your sins. I can blot them out. I can forgive you of your sins before a holy and righteous God. I can reconcile you to God. Jesus really can do that. How do I know that he can do it? Because he can heal a man born paralyzed from birth. That's explicit in the text. It's implicit in both the miracle of Peter and the miracle of Paul and every other sign and wonder throughout Acts. In fact, that's the whole argument of signs and wonders. That's the whole point of signs and wonders. That's the whole point of the book of Acts. 
is look at what Jesus can do and continues to do through gospel-transformed believers. Look at the supernatural work of their lives. Look at the supernatural work of the apostles. Look at it, and it draws a crowd. And every time it draws a crowd, it's to lift people's eyes above the miracle, above the sign, above the miracle worker to Jesus. That's the whole point. And that's implicit in this text here, in what we're seeing. What's interesting is that Jesus healed this man by his own power, whereas Peter and Paul healed in the name of Jesus, which teaches us that Jesus does really continue to work through gospel-transformed believers. It also tells us, the text tells us, that he leaped up, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. In verse 8, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Leaping is said twice. Walking and leaping, leaping and walking, and going into the temple. What is this telling us here? What are we learning in this moment here? Well, if we study the Old Testament, we see in Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, that when the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah promised, God promised through the prophet, when the Messiah comes, the lame will leap like deer. It's in Zephaniah 2. When the Messiah comes, the lame will be gathered. They will be safe. Their shame will be turned to joy. And they will leap like deer. When Jesus is asked in John, in the Gospel of John, when he's asked, it's also in the Gospel of Luke, when he's asked, are you the Messiah that we should be waiting for? He says, the blind see and the lame leap. What do you think? That's his message. If they're leaping like deer, then yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that was promised from the Old Testament. What do we see in this text but the lame still leaping? But Jesus is nowhere to be seen. Jesus was crucified. Isn't he dead? Absolutely not. He is alive and well and reigning supreme right now on the throne. And he works now through the supernatural transformation of his believers. That's what we're learning here in this text. That's the first thing that we're beginning to see here in this text. The difference now is he's working through the lame will now experience the loving embrace of Jesus. And the grace of Jesus. Through our loving embrace and through our proclamation of his grace. And we said the lesser to the greater argument is also teaching us that Jesus has the power to transform, that Jesus really can heal. This man, Peter, has essentially given him a new life, which points us to the reality that, that Jesus really does have the power to give us a new spiritual life. He really can heal, and that leads us to the response. And the response, this miracle elicits a response. And it's first the response of the man, and secondly, the response of the crowds. 
When we see the text in verse 6 and 7, we see the man's response. We've already read the text, but, but it says that he took him by the, Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping in verse 8, and he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, the medical professionals in the room, and I know there are a lot, and I know there's a lot of physical trainers in the room, you know that the, the, this miracle is so profound. See, most of us read this text and we say, oh, look, his feet were made whole, and he began to walk. That is miraculous. But everyone else that, that knows the medical side of things knows this man was, was, was paralyzed for 40 years and he couldn't walk. He doesn't have muscles. His muscles haven't been working. They, like This is a miracle through and through completely. His feet aren't just made whole. His legs are made whole. He's not just learning to walk in this moment. He's walking and he's not just walking. He's leaping in this moment. It's extraordinary. And then it says that he also, his rescue and his, this new life that he's beginning to do here, beginning to experience, he's also praising God. Praising God, that, that literally means speaking, articulating, verbalizing, praise, exaltation to God. He's, his, his actions are displaying praise to God, and his words are giving praise to God. There's, there's actions and adoration that have overflowed from this transformation that's occurred in his life. He is leaping because he can, and he's leaping for joy. He's been paralyzed for all of his life. He could not walk. He was dependent, powerless, and helpless for all of his life. And now he can walk? What we're seeing in this text is his worship, his joy, his excitement, and it's the only rightful response to being rescued and redeemed. And it begs the question for you and I, is our rescue, is our redemption visible? Is our joy at the salvation of God, the rescue of God in Jesus, is it palpable? Is it, is it tangible? Is it visible, physical? Is it seen? Is it felt? If not, if it's not evident, why not? Why not? Here's a couple of reasons. It, it may be because you've forgotten the gravity of your condition. It may be because you've forgotten what it was like to be lame spiritually. It may be that you've forgotten what it was like to be separated from God, far from Him. You've forgotten what it was like to be powerless and defenseless and in desperate need of rescue. You may have forgotten that. This man knows his condition, the depth, the enormity of his condition. Do you and I know the depth and the enormity of our spiritual condition separated from God? In our sin. Another reason it may be because we've lost or forgotten the joy of our salvation, the immensity of God's grace to us, towards us in Jesus Christ, the surpassing riches of what He has poured out on us, lavished on us in Jesus Christ. This man is leaping for joy because he realizes were it not an act of God to heal me, I would not be walking, leaping, or be able to enter the presence of God or able to open my lips to give God glory and praise. This man was distant and yet now he's been brought near. This man was forgotten and now yet he's been remembered. He's been seen. 
He, 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 this man doesn't know what the physical touch of others is like. He's received coins, but not the embrace. And now he's received the embrace of these believers. It may be because you're not daily meditating on God's great grace towards you. This is another reason it's so important for us to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remember it, to rehearse it, and to preach it to ourselves daily, to never graduate from it. There's a whole host of reasons we may not be giving evidence. It could be that we've nibbled so long on the silver and gold of this world that we don't have appetites for the treasure of heaven, Jesus Christ. We've nibbled so long at the silver and gold of YouTube. We've nibbled so long at the silver and gold of status before others. We've nibbled so long at profit and loss sheets. We've nibbled so long at achievement. We've nibbled so long at success. We've nibbled so long at failure. We've nibbled so long at approval. We've nibbled so long at having that thing to satisfy my soul. We don't have appetites. We've nibbled so long on good things that we don't have room and an appetite for the greatest treasure of heaven. This man is a living example of what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field. And a man discovers it, finds it, and goes and sells everything else to buy the field so that he can have the treasure. There's a whole host of reasons that we don't give evidence of the joy of our salvation. And we're invited to see this man and the joy of this rescue and the joy of this salvation. This is why it's so important for us to constantly return to the gospel and never graduate from it, to preach it, to meditate on it, to marinate in it, to push it down past the head, down to the level of the heart, to stare at Jesus on the cross, to see the enormity of my sin and the immensity of God's great grace towards me in Jesus. So that's his response. But notice his, it also changes his response towards others. Immediately it says that he's entering the temple with them, with Peter and John. Later, in, it's going to say in verse 11 that he's clinging to Peter and John. Clinging to Peter and John. And later, when they're brought before the leaders, the magistrates, he is standing right there with them when they're giving a defense. This man's condition or position with the community of believers has now changed. He didn't just get an individual rescue. He got also a corporate family. We talked about it last week. His relationship to these other believers has now changed. Now he is clinging to them, desperate for them, loving them, even going to the defense with them. He's not an isolated individual lone ranger follower of Christ. He is now in the midst of a new community. That's his response. That's what we see in him. But look at the crowd's response because it's also telling. It says in the text that they were, ast- they were amazed and they were filled with wonder and amazement and what, at what had happened. And then verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. This sign and wonder has captured their attention. It's captured their attention. It's drawn a crowd together in this moment. And in their response, what's amazing is amazement is is this Greek word that means 
it's the same word that Jesus, that was used of Jesus after he healed that man lowered. It says everyone was amazed. It's the same Greek word. So it's the same response that they see when we see Jesus heal. They're, they're in the same place here. But notice it says they ran together in amazement. They ran together to them, to, the, to Peter and John, to the man. They ran to them and they're amazed, they're astounded, they're ecstatic, they're curious. And we don't need to see that just as their emotional status. They're running together to them to figure out what has happened. Explain this to me. This is Acts chapter 2 on repeat. Remember the language that it said when, when the Spirit descended and filled the believers and they began to speak in everyone's own language and they began to hear it. It says they were bewildered, they were astounded, they were amazed. They stood in wonder and awe and they asked a question. What does this mean? The same response is happening here. This is a wonder and an amazement. This man has been healed. He's been changed. This response elicits a response. This miracle elicits a response. It calls these, these people to run together and ask the question, what on earth is going on here? It captures attention. And so too does your gospel transformation. So too does the gospel transformation of your individual life. When people see that's who they were, and now this is who they are, people are curious about it. They wonder about it. When they see this was his status, this was his attitude, this was his disposition, these were his affections, and now this is his status, disposition, and affections. They're to so totally different. When they see the joy and they hear the joy and they feel the joy, it draws a crowd. What happens in this text still happens today, and it happens through you and I. God is still drawing crowds to testify to his great grace towards sinners, and he's doing it in you, in your gospel transformation, in the joy that you have over his great grace towards you. He's doing it through you, through your words, through your actions, through your affections, through your love. And notice what happens in response. They draw together, they gather together, they ask a question. They're so curious, they're astounded, they're ecstatic, which is really the Greek translation of the word, amazed. They're ecstatic, they're asking, what on earth is going on here? And Peter, it says, it's, they, he sees, he saw them rush together and he addressed the people. This is our last point. This is the witness. Peter immediately seized on this opportunity to proclaim the gospel. To tell them, to explain to them what has happened. The same thing happened in chapter 2. He stood up, it says, and he began to proclaim to them the gospel. And he proclaims to them who Jesus is. He immediately redirects attention away from himself towards Jesus. He immediately does that. He tells them the cause of this miracle is Jesus. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's not me. It's not my power. It's not my piety. There's, he's talking to a, this audience. If they know God as well as they say they do, then they know that this is not a miracle that man can achieve. This is not something man can do. 
If they know the Old Testament like they say they do, then they know that it was promised that when the Messiah comes, the lame will leap like deer. When the Messiah continues his work, the lame will leap like deer. You know, audience, what they're saying here, what this is. This is the work of the Messiah. This is the work of Jesus. There's no other explanation for it. It's not my power. It's not my religious performance. It's not my piety. It's not me. It's Jesus. Is that the testimony of your life? When everyone's attention and eyes are on you, are they through you to Jesus? Are we redirecting at every moment everyone's gaze to Jesus? When everyone's drawn to the supernatural change in your life, do they hear, not me, but Jesus? Do they hear what John said? John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. I must lower, he must raise, he must be exalted, I must not be exalted. Not me, but him. Is that the testimony of our lives? This is clearly the work of God. This is clearly the work of the Messiah, Jesus, just like salvation. Just like salvation. And Peter, preaching the gospel here, again, we're just skimming the high points. He begins with what they already know. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He starts right where they're at. He, know, he starts right what they already know. You know, you know, audience, to the audience he's speaking here, you know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He deserves all glory, all praise, and everybody's not in agreement. Yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. And in the text it says, but he gave his glory to another. He gave his glory. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified his servant, the suffering servant, the one who laid his life down. He glorified the holy and righteous one, Peter says. He glorified the one who gave himself, who laid himself down. He glorified him. He gave him all glory. If God, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God Almighty, lifts up Jesus, points to Jesus, says Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life, directs all attention to Him, then shouldn't we also? Shouldn't we see Him also? Shouldn't we look to Him also? This is the message that Peter is proclaiming here. And he transitions and he says, this God who gave glory to the author of life, who you betrayed, who you traded, for a murderer. There's all kinds of irony in the text when he says that. You betrayed the author of life and traded him for a murderer. What he ends up saying here is what you meant for evil, God meant for good, and he's meant for good all along. You killed him, but God raised him up. God set him forth. That's what he said in chapter 2 in his first sermon. God put him forward. God offered him up. This Jesus, the Messiah, the holy and righteous one. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. They killed him, God raised him. It's this Jesus, Peter says. It's by his name, Peter says. More specifically, he is very adamant and clear. It's by faith in his name, he says in verse 15 and 16. It's by faith in his name that this man is made whole is made perfect, is made right. When We know that Peter's operating in, in faith and by faith in Jesus. When he's talking about by faith in his name, he's talking about the man, the man's faith. When it says in the text 
Earlier in the text that Peter says, look at me, and he, he, he tells him, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Do you realize, you realize, right, that this man could have easily said, you're crazy. This man could have easily, dis- the lame man could have easily dismissed Peter. He could have easily looked at his legs and said, you are, you've lost your mind. He could have looked at his circumstances and said, no way. He could have easily dismissed Peter. He could have easily dismissed that command. He could have easily dismissed Jesus, the name. But he didn't. Why? He trusted Peter. More importantly, he trusted the name that Peter proclaimed. He trusted. He, by faith in the name of Jesus... He put his faith in Jesus, not in his circumstances. He put his faith in Jesus, not what he could see. He put his faith in Jesus, not the 40 years of sitting there paralyzed, unable to walk. He put his faith in Jesus despite everything else, every other message, everything that could be, he could have hoped in. He put his faith in Jesus. That's faith. That is salvific faith. It's saying, I could hope in me, I could hope in my wisdom, I could hope in my strength, I could hope in this person and that person and their approval and their achievement, I could, my achievement, my success, and my, I could hope in all of these things, but I take all of my eggs and I put them all in the basket of Jesus. Everything is in and on Jesus. Jesus is my salvation. Jesus is my hope. That's faith. That's what rescues this man. Such that now he stands with the community of faith. He walks with the community of faith. There's an outward transformation in his attitude, his actions, his adoration, his worship, his words, his relationship to community. This man has been saved. Is this your confession? Is that your faith? Is this my faith? Peter proves that these people are guilty and stand condemned before a holy God. And what he's doing in this moment is putting before them a parable. Don't you see the spiritual condition, the physical condition of this man? Don't you see the spiritual condition of this man? Don't you see what healed him? He cried out for the name of Jesus. He hoped and trusted and put his faith in the name of Jesus. And what happened? He's made whole. Peter is repeating the sermon that he's already given in chapter 2 when he, when he quoted from Joel. And in Joel, he said, Joel says, and Peter proclaimed, anyone who claims the name of Jesus, anyone who hopes in the name of Jesus will be saved, will be spared, will be made whole. The same is being said here. Don't you and I see, we have to see, Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive and well, reigning on the throne and continues to work, continues to redeem, continues to proclaim the gospel, work the gospel in and transform lives. He does it now through redeemed gospel transformed believers. You and I, don't you see this was our story? Those of you who've hoped in Jesus, this is our story. We were the spiritually lame. We were the spiritually distant from God. We were the spiritually powerless and hopeless. And yet Jesus stared at us and said, rise and walk. Rise and live. That's our story. We've been supernaturally transformed. 
That's our story, and that story is attractive. It draws a crowd. And the question for you and I is, does it, do we respond with a witness? Do we respond? Is this the joy of our salvation? Is this the proclamation that we proclaim? Not me. I didn't do it. The change isn't me. It's Jesus. This is why I have new loves and new actions and why I don't do those things and I do do these things. This is why I value this community. This is why I value gathering and worship. This is why this is so important. Do they hear it? Do they hear it through you and I? How is it that you and I, who were the spiritually lame, have been made right with God? Because Jesus became lame on our behalf. Because Jesus became powerless on our behalf. So that you and I who are powerless and spiritually lame could be rescued and redeemed and restored and receive power and proclaim that power to the world, to the nations. This is extraordinary. If this man's physical condition displays our spiritual condition, then this man's healing also displays some things spiritually. It, it first it displays the power of Jesus to heal us, make us whole spiritually. It also displays the joy that accompanies such healing. And we have to wrestle with if that joy is not there, why? If that joy is not evident, why? And then it also displays the new community that we receive as a result. And ultimately, this supernatural transformation, God continues to work to draw a crowd to, to elicit a response so that there can be a proclamation and witness. That's the joy and the privilege that you and I get. It's not just for those that stand up and teach the Bible. It's for every single man, woman, and child that's been redeemed and rescued by Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. Is Jesus your hope? Is Jesus your joy? Is Jesus your story? Has Jesus invited you to rise and walk and live? And again, just like this text, this morning we get to celebrate that Jesus is not dead. He sits on the throne and he continues to work and he continues to call people to rise to life. And that's what we're going to celebrate with baptism this morning. That's the joy and the privilege that we get to celebrate this morning. Baptism is an outward confession of an inward reality. That outward confession is the confession that, yes, Jesus died for me and he rose for me. He's my salvation. He's my hope. He's my joy. And it's also an outward confession that I want to identify with him. I confess I want to die to my old life and rise to the new life. In Christ Jesus. And in uniting with him, I also unite with this body of believers. The, body, the greater body of believers, and particularly this body of believers. So this is a momentous occasion in the life of any church that we need to celebrate with great joy. Joe's going to take it from here, and he's going to explain who all is getting baptized in the first and second service. Well, the church said.